Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity to hear from you. That you have not left us completely void and and groping in the dark. Instead, Father, you have come and now you live with your Spirit in us to teach us, to speak to us, to instruct us in what your Word says about what the Christian life is about. And I pray, Father, that these next three days will be one where you are glorified, your word is preached to preached and honestly and openly, and that we would come to see the freedom, the wonder, the incredible nature of your life and your grace. So I confess my dependence upon you, Father, and I give you permission to do whatever you want in these next three days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, begin with a verse in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where Paul is giving a warning to the, the church in Corinth, and he says, I fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. This is a warning Paul writes to these, these Corinthian Christians uh, about that somehow they would be deceived into, or maybe more accurately, away from the simplicity of the gospel, which is all about Jesus. Think about how Adam and Eve in the garden, um, along came the serpent, the Satan, and he began to deceive and, and trick Eve into another way of thinking. And her, her, the, the deception was that there would be some other way to live the Christian life, or in, in, for them, just some other way to live. And the idea being that somehow Adam and Eve could do something to become like God. Wasn't that the deception? That Eve had this tree in front of her, and and the serpent said, if you eat of this tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like who? You'll be like God. And so Adam and Eve embarked upon this uh, this endeavor, this idea that they could somehow do something to become more like God. And that was the deception that Eve fell for, and that's the warning that Paul's warning against. Now that may sound a little ridiculous to you and I, but I think that this is something that is is um, is prevalent in our churches today. Because I think what's happened in our churches today is we've taken a gospel which is ultimately simple. It has to be simple. Because who's it meant for? (laughs) Us. For the whole world. And if it's meant for everyone, then it has to be simple. Because it's not meant just for the top 10% of the elites. It's meant for everybody. And so therefore, it has to be a simple message. It has to be a simple gospel. But what happens is, I think, is we've made the simplicity of of this message into something complex. And so what ends up happening now is we have a Christian message which is then um, explained and detailed where you now have to follow a six-step formula to try to live the Christian life. And those six steps either all begin with the letter P or they spell a word. And, and that's somehow I'm, my, 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 the strategy that we use to somehow live the Christian life. But what ends up happening, I think, is we get away from the simplicity of it. The reason I say that is if you look at the church as a whole, I don't think you see the victory that Jesus promised. The church as a whole, Jesus promised us 
um, abundant life, rest, joy, peace, victory. But what you see when you look at the churches today are 10% of the Christians doing 90% of the work and then burning out. You see people that are fighting, people that are, are splitting up into many different denominations, many different churches. You see workers just being run out of town. You don't see the victory that I think that Jesus came to give us. And I think it's in part because we've gotten away from the simplicity that is all about Jesus Christ. So my hope for the next three days is that we will be able to rediscover the simplicity of Jesus and how he really is all that we need. Amen. Does that sound like a good goal? Okay. Let's take a look at a verse in Isaiah, verse uh, chapter 40 and verse 31. This is a very popular verse if you've looked at any kind of Christian artwork that has eagles on it. Uh, and, and for good reason. I think it's a great verse. It's a very powerful verse that I think even, although it's an Old Testament verse, describes what the Christian life is today. So it says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A beautiful picture, a beautiful verse. You know, especially when you look in the context of it, how the verses before God's talking about himself and how he doesn't tire out, how he doesn't burn out. And so then he says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Let's think about that word renew for a second. If I were to renew something, what would I be doing? Suppose my, my car was, you know, had faulty brakes and had a, a bashed up door and the muffler was falling off and the tires were bald and, and it was leaking oil and I decided to go and renew my car. What would I do? Yes. To make it like it used to be when it was new. Yeah, so I would probably fix the brakes, <coughs> fix the oil leak, fix the banged up door. I'd fix the muffler, maybe even put a different muffler on or something. But I would essentially fix up the car. And so at the end of the day, what am I left with? The same car fixed up. Does that make sense? And you see, for some people, that's kind of how they've looked and approached the Christian life. That I have failed, I've struggled to live the Christian life or to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's what we discovered at the moment of salvation. And then we receive Jesus in the sense of now he's going to fix me up and then I'll try harder to do better the next time. And really what we've done is we've reduced the Christian life to a holy mulligan. Any golfers here? No? I'm not a golfer. My golf involves clowns and windmills. Uh, so I am not a golfer. But, but for golfers, mulligans mean do-over. So if you're a golfer and you stand up to the tee and you, you know, hit the, the little white ball and it begins to slice into, you know, the parking lot and then the next parking lot and then the next street over, you might turn to your friend and say mulligan. And he would say, okay. And what they would do is they put a new ball on the tee and just pretend that shot never happened. Well, was the problem the ball? Is that why it sliced two parking lots and a street over? Who, what was the problem? The guy swinging the club. That was the problem. So a mulligan isn't really going to change anything. I guess maybe if he aims this way and it can slice straight, but, but really the problem wasn't the ball. The problem was the guy swinging the club. And so a mulligan doesn't really help. 
And you see, that's what we've kind of, you know, reduced the Christian life to. I failed to measure up to what God asked. I failed to live a life worthy of Him. And so then I receive forgiveness of sins, and now I'm going to try again, but this time I really mean it. And so we try, and then we fail. And so then we rededicate our lives, and then we fail. And then we rededicate and rededicate and really mean it and rededicate it, and yet we keep ending up with the same results. And so the same people are rededicating their lives time and time again on every Sunday. And it's simply not working. And the reason is because Jesus hasn't given us a renewed gospel. A better word rather than the word renew is, is exchange. If you look in the Hebrew, it literally has the idea of taking off your coat and putting a new one on, a different one on. And you see, there's a big difference between renewing something and exchanging something. See, if I renew my car, I just fix up the same car, but at the end of the day, it's the same car. But if I were to exchange the car, what would I have? I'd have a different car altogether. And you see, that's what Jesus has done. He didn't renew your life, He exchanged your life. He exchanged your strength for His strength. And His strength doesn't run out. He's exchanged your patience for His patience. He's exchanged your peace for His peace. And so as a result, we get to mount up with wings as eagles. Have you ever had the opportunity to see an eagle fly? They don't really fly, they tend to soar. Because what they do is they just spread their wings and then they just aim themselves for the wind current and away they go. Really, they only flap their wings maybe two or three times just to start. But then for the most part, they're just soaring, much like we have this picture of an eagle soaring right now. But again, many Christians end up flying a bit like ducks. Ever seen a duck fly? I mean, they start off kind of on the water, and they seem to be smooth on the surface. But if you were to ever look below the surface, what would you discover? Them paddling a million miles a minute. And they're desperately moving. And then they decide to fly. And so then they, they start flapping their wings and moving their head and honking away. And they're doing all this work just to get up off the water. And if they ever were to stop flapping, what would happen? They'd crash. And so it's a lot of work for a duck to fly. And you see, I see a lot of Christians looking like those ducks. Maybe on the surface for a while they seem to be calm, cool, and collected. But underneath... They're just dying and moving a million miles per minute just to keep going. And then they begin to fly, but they can never stop because if they do, they'll crash. But that's not what we've been called for. That's not what we've been given. It goes on to say, we shall run and not be weary. We shall walk and not faint. That's power. That's strength. And so that's the simplicity that it's not a renewed gospel, but an exchanged gospel. So what I hope to do tonight is two parts. One is I want to take a look at God's greatest purpose. What God's great desire is for you and I in this Christian life. But then I want to talk about the great hindrance. Now I'm going to warn you, there's going to be a lot of negative stuff we're going to talk about tonight. And, and that, the reason being is because if you don't understand the problem, then the answer is meaningless to you. I mean, suppose you walked into a doctor's office and the doctor said to you, um, I'm glad you're here. I have some important news for you. I want you to start injecting your body full of poison. How many people would sign up for that? No one, right? I mean, that's just ridiculous. You'd probably flee the scene and never come back. Well, why? Because the answer doesn't make any sense. 
But suppose when you walked into the office, he says, I'm sorry, I'm afraid to tell you, but you have cancer. The good news is we've caught it early. And if you take the chemotherapy with the poison, then you have a 100% chance of survival. So now will you take the, take the poison? Sure. Same answer, but now when you understand the problem, the answer makes sense. I'm sure you've seen it. Have you ever tried to share Jesus with one of your friends and they say, no, it's okay, I don't need him? Well, is that the reality? Do they not need Jesus? Sure they do. They just don't understand why they need him. And so Jesus, the answer is meaningless to them. Well, for you and I, if we don't understand the problem, then the answer is meaningless. Now, the good news is the answer is always the same. The answer is who? Jesus. That's a safe bet, right? You can, whenever you get stuck, you just say Jesus or Moses and you'll be okay. And Jesus, eight out of the ten, the other two is Moses, and you'll end up with a 75% average, right? So, but, I mean, it's, we laugh, but the reality is it's true. Jesus is the answer. So the question is, what is he the answer to? And that's what we want to look at tonight. And so I'm going to warn you ahead of time, it's going to be sad and depressing, but if it is, then I've done my job. Because then the good news will come in the nights ahead. Okay, are you warned? Okay. So on page five, then, of your syllabus, we want to take a look at what's God's greatest purpose for you and I as his children. We're not looking for any purpose, but we're looking for the what? The greatest purpose. So here are some possible answers. One is to serve the Lord. Uh, our Salvation Army friends, they have two S's on their collars. And that's to remind them that they're saved to serve. And that's their whole mindset, that they've, they've received this salvation in order that they can now become servants of Christ, and that's the main purpose that we're around for. Well, that's a good purpose, but we're not looking for any purpose. We're looking for God's greatest purpose. And I don't think God's greatest purpose for you and I is to serve Him. Let me show you a verse, and I'll, and I'll explain why I, I believe that. In Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, it says, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all life and breath in all things. So let's understand this verse. First, it says, He does not dwell in temples made with hands. What does that mean? Yeah, he, he doesn't dwell in buildings. I remember growing up as a kid and my, my parents saying, you got to put on your best clothes because you're going to God's house. And you know what? That wasn't true. I was never going to God's house. We were just dressing up God's house. Because you and I are the house of God. You're in many ways God's mobile home. And so God lives in you, a traitor. And wherever you go, you take him. That's where he lives. That's where he dwells. But not, it goes on to say, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, God doesn't need you and I. He really doesn't. There's this idea that, that we, are, we are so important, so crucial to God that if we, if we don't get involved, then God's going to be somehow let down and, and we're going to fail him. And the reality is he doesn't need us. The great news is that he includes us. Far more inefficient, but he includes us. But he doesn't need to. If God really needed man, first off, he wouldn't be God. But second off, then the whole story of creation would have been very different. 
I think it would have read this way. In the beginning, God made man and then turned to Adam and said, Adam, we got a lot of work to do. Let's get started. But that's not how the story of creation goes. Instead, when does man come on the scene? At the end. And then one of the first things he gets to do is take the day off. Because the work is done. It's finished. And so God doesn't need us. Instead, he's the one who's giving to all life and breath and all things. If we were to give God a one-word job description, what would it be? If we were to give God a one-word job description in this verse, what would it be? In particular, this last phrase. What is he doing? He's giving. He's a giver. Well, if there's a giver in this relationship, then there also must be a receiver. Well, guess who's the receiver? Us. But there are many Christians so desperately trying to give to God, they can't actually receive from God. Let me let me illustrate. Erica, can I can I borrow your pen for this? Okay. Just let me have your pen. If I can get your pen, then I can explain this. Just just feel free. I mean, we don't have all night. We have some time, but but can I have the pen? Sure. What's 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 the issue here? What's what's the problem with this? <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people have had that response. What was the issue? I was so busy trying to give to Erica that she was trying to give to me, but I couldn't receive because I was too busy giving. And so she you know, gently tossed the pen at me. And I think God might feel the same way with you and I at times. Just take it. Because what's He trying to give us? Life, breath, and all things. But we're sometimes getting so wrapped up in serving God that we're missing out from receiving from God. Let me illustrate with another story. This is a story you probably know very well. We often refer to it as the prodigal son story. In Luke chapter 15. I think that's a bit of a misnomer though, because it's the story opens in verse 11 saying that there is a man who had two sons. So really, it's not about the son, the story is about who? The father. Because it's a man who had two sons. But I think the term prodigal is fitting. See, prodigal means wasteful, lavish. And that's exactly what the father was with his love. He was wasteful and lavish and extravagant in his love towards his sons, towards his two children. And so really, I think this story should be the prodigal father story. But we know it as the prodigal son story because of what happened. He basically comes to dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he said. He didn't say those words, but when he said, I wish I could have my inheritance, he was in essence saying, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, can I have my inheritance anyway? And so his father did, he gave him his inheritance, and then a couple days later he comes back and says, Dad, I don't care if you're alive or dead, you don't matter to me. Again, he didn't say it in so many words, but the very action where he just took one-third of the family farm and left was basically saying, I don't care. I mean, could you imagine today a business losing overnight one-third of its business, its capital, its resources? What would happen to any business if it lost that? It It would suffer and it would struggle and it might even die. 
And so this is the attitude of that younger son. He doesn't care. He goes off to the far country, spends all these guys. He's got nothing left on parties and alcohol and so forth. And then eventually there's a drought. He has to now sell himself to go work for one of the people out in the far country looking after pigs. Here is a good Jewish boy leaving, going to the far country, now looking after pigs, which they didn't really have a lot to do with. But it got so bad, it got so worse, that he began to look at the food the pigs were eating and thinking, they're eating better than me. And then he remembered home and thought, you know what, it would be better if I was a servant in my father's house. And I think that's why he left in the first place. He didn't want to be a servant. And so he decides to go home and he's preparing his speech all the way home, right? Have you been there when you have to go apologize to someone and you you rehearse over and over? I'm going to say this, and I'll say that, then I'll say this, I'll say that. (coughs) Have you been there or am I the only one? Okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, so he's doing this the whole way. And then it says while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. What does that tell you the father was doing? Waiting and watching. And he sees him, and the father runs to him. The only time in Scripture we see God running. And here you see God running to this um, rebellious, uncaring son. And he sees him, and then the son immediately breaks off into his speech. Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. And, And the father just says, shh, I don't want to hear it. Stop. And he immediately restores him as a son puts on the cloak, gives him the family credit card right away. That was the ring. It was essentially a family credit card. There was no probation, no earning your way. Here it is. It's yours. And he comes back to the home and he says, it's time for a party. Kills a fattened calf and the party begins. My kind of a God. Great reason to party. And he's all excited. Well, I want to pick up the story here because it's not just the father of the prodigal son. He also had an older son. And that's what I want to look at. So beginning in verse 25, it says the older son was in the field. Now, what do you suppose he was doing in the field? I think he was working. It doesn't explicitly say so, but I think it's pretty safe to say that he he wasn't, you know, sitting in a hammock under a tree, sipping on an iced tea, reading a book. I think he was hard at work in the field. And he's coming back. And when he heard, when he came and approached the house, his house, he heard music and dancing. Now, if you came home to your house and, and you're you know, living with your parents still and, and all of a sudden you heard music and dancing going on in your father's house, what would you do? Who would you go talk to? Dad, maybe? <laughs> parents? Go find out what's going on? I mean, this isn't normal. Unless maybe your parents are kind of wild. But, but I mean, you'd probably go and find out why, why, are, why is dad throwing a party? And, and that, to me, would be the natural thing. But look what he does. He stops short of the house, doesn't go in, and he summons one of the servants. So it's not like he had, you know, the one who was just there, and he just out of convenience asked him. He summoned him from a ways away. Come here, come here, come here. Waiting, not going in the house. And he began to inquire of the servant what's going on. Well, the servant tells him. He says, well, your brother's come home, and your father's killed a fattened calf because you receive him back safe and sound. Good as reason as any to party. Well, look at his response. His younger brother, who's been gone, been away, he's home safe and sound, and his reaction is he's furious. He's so angry, so full of rage, that he is not willing to go in 
And so his father had to come out and begin to plead with him. I know exactly what this looks like because I have four little kids at home. This is a classic young kid, young child temper tantrum where they are just throwing, you know, maybe he's lying on his back kicking his feet because that's what I picture because I've got four little girls, six and under, and that's what they do when things don't go their way. They're just throwing a big fit. And I think this is what he's doing. He's, he's throwing a big temper tantrum. And it gets so bad, dad has to come out and begin to plead with him. Now, I'm told in Jewish culture that when the master of the house, when he leaves the house where a party's going on, for whatever reason, the moment he leaves, the party stops. No more music, no more dancing, no more drinking, no more partying, no more eating. Just everything cuts short, and they wait until he comes back. And so, imagine you're at this party. Everything stops because the father has to go out to see the son. What would you be doing? Would you be a little curious as to what's going on? Would you be like me, nose pressed up against the window watching? You know, for safety and concern, so I know how to pray for them better, of course, right? Would you be doing that? Well, what would you see? You would see this great man, this well-respected man, on his knees, begging and pleading for his son to come and see his other son. Please come and see your brother. Please come in. But look how he responds. He answered and said to his father, Look, Dad. Think he said it like that? Nice and calm and relaxed. He's angry. He's furious. There would be some rage and some spice in this voice. Look, Dad. For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And you have yet never given me a calf that I might be married with my friends. I deserve it, not him. It's not right. I've done everything you've asked. I've been working, I've been working, I've been working, and I don't get blessed like he does. It's not fair. And what we have here is a picture of the the Christian who thinks that what they receive is based on what they can give God. They're under a legalistic performance-based relationship with God. Where their mindset is, if I give to God, then He'll give me back more. That I will be blessed based on what I can give to Him. And then they get angry when they see God blessing other people. They're furious because it's not fair. Because they've worked harder. He goes on, but this son of yours, you notice he no longer is related to him anymore. It's not my brother, it's this son of yours. Viard and I might do this at times. You know, that daughter of yours is causing trouble. It's not my daughter anymore because my daughter wouldn't act that way. But your daughter, you know, that's what he's doing here. This son of yours, when who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you kill the fattened calf for him. He doesn't deserve it. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. But then the father answers. You can hear the, the heartache in his voice. My child. My child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Which is true, right? At any point in time, that older brother could have taken the calf and killed him. In fact, the moment the younger brother left, everything that remained belonged to who? To the older son. But he thought he had to earn it through what he did. And so the result of all this is in essence he was saying to him, Son, you're my son, not my servant. All this time we could have enjoyed a relationship, but you were so busy trying to serve me, you missed out on what I could give to you. 
And remember, He's a giver. He's wanting to give to us life, breath, and all things. If we would receive from Him. But there are some that are so busy thinking they need to serve Him in order to please Him. And He's happy to give. Does that make sense? So serving the Lord is important. It's very important in the Christian life. But we're not looking for any important things. We're looking for God's greatest purpose for you and I. And it's much more than just to serve Him. Another one might be to obey the Lord. Um, You know, I I said earlier we have four little girls. You know, I I pretty much can tell you and guarantee that when Viarda and I, we looked at little Hannah and she was two and and just obeying every command that we gave, of course, as all two-year-olds do, we thought, well, this is wonderful. We should have another child. We didn't do that. (laughs) I mean, little kids, they don't come pre-wired to obey. And, you know, if God wanted us just to be obedient, then I think He would have stopped with the angels because we're not that obedient. So it's much more than that. And again, it's important, but it's not the greatest purpose. Well, what about to love the Lord? You know, there are some people who have this idea that God needs our love. You know, the Bible says God is love. It's not like in creation, God made the cute little puppy dogs and thought, you know, they're cute, they're wonderful and cuddly, but they just don't quite fill my man-shaped hole in my heart. And so I need to make man, and then man can love me, and then I'll be complete. We don't have a codependent God. He, He was doing fine before us. He'll do fine after us. He is love. What about to glorify the Lord? To bring Him glory. Well, that could look like a bunch of different things. We have up here, and you don't have to write these down because this isn't really the answer. But I mean, we have give God credit for everything I do, engage in worship and praise, witness, give thanks for all the good things, prayer, Bible study, meditation, give money. Are all these things the Christian life? Well, you want to know something? You don't have to be a Christian to do any of this. In fact, our Muslim friends do all this, and maybe even more so than some Christians. They give give credit to God for what they do. They engage in worship and praise. They witness. They give thanks. In fact, they may even pray more than some Christians. They may study the, their Bible more than Christians. They do all these things, but does it please God one bit? No. You see, all these things is based on what I do. And could it be that the Christian life is more than what I do? Well, let's take a look at some scripture about that. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice, he doesn't say, let me tell you about the way, or let me describe it to you in detail. Let me explain to you, or let me show you the life. He says, I am. He takes ownership of it. I am the life. Earlier on, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. What I want you to see is that the Christian life is much more than what you can do. The Christian life is a person named Jesus Christ. It's him and it's his life. So Jesus Christ is the Christian life. And only by learning how Jesus lived can I discover how to live the Christian life. And it's not what he did, but how did he do it? You see, what we've done is we've we've reduced the Christian life to a bunch of rules, as I said earlier, and we've complicated the Christian life. Do you remember a movement a few years ago, the WWJD movement? 
You probably saw the hats, the t-shirts, the bobble covers, the wristbands, the bracelets, the shoes, the backpacks. It was a great mar- marketing you know, success, but really lousy theology. The whole idea was based on whenever you find yourself in a situation, you are to then respond as Jesus would. So you would think, here is a situation, what would Jesus do, and then I'm to go and do it. Well, that's just fraught with all kinds of problems. You see, who is Jesus? God. So I've got two problems now. One, I've got to somehow crawl up into God's head and think like God. And if I could somehow pull that off, then I got to go and do it and go and live like God. So you know what that means when you see a blind person? Jesus would heal blind people. In fact, one time he spat in the guy's eyes and that's how he healed them. So if you ever meet a blind person and think, okay, I get to meet a blind person, I'm going to love him, what would Jesus do? Well, he spat in their eyes. A little weird to me, but that's what that's what it says. So here I go, and you spit in the guy's eyes. The good news is he wouldn't see it coming. And, you know, if you keep quiet, then he doesn't know who did it either. But, I mean, is that what we do? Is that the response? No, I mean, you're, you're laughing at me because it's so ridiculous, but that's exactly what that movement is based on trying to imitate what Jesus did. Trying to do something to be like God. Where have we heard that before? That's the same lie that Eve fell for in the garden. That she could somehow do something to be like God. And that lie hasn't stopped being told thousands of years ago. It continues to be told time and time again, over the pulpit, Christian to Christian, this idea that we could somehow do something to be like God. And simply, that's not it. It's not about replicating the behavior that Jesus did, but rather understanding how Jesus did what he did. See, have you ever taken the moment to think, how did Jesus live? How did he perform those miracles? You know, I mean, you saw miracles like raising the dead and healing the sick. And what about the really impressive miracles like loving your enemy? When he didn't strangle the Pharisees when they kept on trying to trick him. Or when he showed patience to the disciples when they asked dumb questions time and time again. Those are the real miracles. How did he do those? Well, let's take a look at Acts 2.22. The first sermon after Pentecost. And Peter gets up and he says, Men of Israel, listen up. This is his way of saying, pay attention. It's in the middle of the sermon. This isn't when he's in, you know, starting to speak. It's halfway through the sermon. He says, if you've drifted off, if you've kind of fallen asleep or thinking about, you know, what am I going to have for dinner tomorrow night? And, and you know, did I turn off the oven? Did I, what about laundry? How, what am I going to do this? He says, don't worry about that for now. Just pay attention. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Now, Jesus is God, was God, always will be God. But while he walked this earth for 33 and a half years, roughly, He lived as man was intended to live. And he was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So my question to you is, who did the miracle of feeding the 5,000? Was it God or Jesus? Yes, is the correct answer. (laughs) It was God through the man, Jesus Christ, who walked on water. It was God through the man, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? That God did among you through him. Let's look at another verse in John 14. 
or John 5, sorry. In John 5, Jesus begins to show to us the simple principle by which he lived. Jesus, being God, said, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. Now, if someone comes up to you and says, can I be honest with you? What does that generally mean? A little suspect the rest of the time they're talking to you, but okay, I'll trust you on this one. Is that the case here? We can trust Jesus in this verse, but everything else is a little bit suspect. Is that it? No, not at all. Instead, it's him saying, I'm going to tell you something really important, so pay attention. The son can do nothing by himself. Jesus says, I don't trust and rely upon my own strength. Instead, I'm going to trust in God. For whatever the father does, the son also does. Because I'm going to let God do it through me. Later on, in the same chapter, by myself, I can do nothing. Jesus didn't act. He didn't move in his own strength. Instead, the whole time, he was trusting in God, the Father, to do it through him. That's what allowed Jesus to do what he did. So in John 14, after he explains, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through, except through me, Philip kind of raises his hand. Maybe Peter was out that day, but Philip raises his hand and says, Oh, you know, Jesus, it'd be great to see the Father. Could you, could you just... Show us the Father a little bit. And then Jesus says, Oh, Philip, have I been with you for so long? Don't you get it? It's been three and a half years that I've been with you. This isn't at the beginning of their ministry. This is at the end. Jesus is going to die that night or be arrested and, and die the next day at least. And he says, Have I been with you for so long? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative. But the Father, abiding in me, living in me, does His works. You see, when Jesus, being God, living as man here on earth, He never relied upon His own strength. He never relied upon the fact that He is God. Instead, He trusted God to do His works and live through Him. And that was the picture for you and I. That's the picture of how you and I are to live this Christian life. You see, we have a verse like 1 Corinthians 11.1 where it says, Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And that's where we get this idea of WWJD from. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul wasn't talking about the behavior that we're to imitate, but rather the trust. I say that because in Hebrews 13, the writer says, Remember your leaders. Remember the ones who've come before you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome. Consider how they lived and imitate their behavior? Imitate their works? Imitate their traditions? No. Imitate their faith. Imitate their trust. Imitate their dependence. And so when Paul is saying to imitate him as he imitates Christ, it wasn't the behavior he wanted you and I to imitate, per se, as much as he wanted us to imitate the dependence and trust, that we would trust in Jesus to live the Christian life through us. So in John 14, 12, where Jesus says, truly, truly, can I be honest with you? Again, to make the point. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. I remember reading that verse as a kid and thinking, wow, that's incredible. You mean the things that Jesus did in those Gospels and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that if I believe in Him, that what He did, I will do also? 
That's what I thought. But that's not what the verse says. Look at the verse. It doesn't say the works that I did, he will do also. It's the works that I do. What tense is that? Present tense. So it's not talking about 2,000 years ago. It's talking about today. So the things that Jesus is up to today, because he's alive and he's at work. He's moving in this world, working in people's hearts. And whatever he's doing, if I put my faith in him, not for salvation, but now for trusting him to live in me, then whatever he's up to, I can become a part of. I could join in what he's doing and he could do it through me. Because whatever he's doing, then I can do also. Look at Psalm 37.5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. Depend in him and... He will do it. You see, what we have to come to understand is that Jesus Christ is the only person that can live the Christian life. It's His life. And no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, how hard I I strive in my own strength, I simply will not be able to do it. But Jesus in me can. It's His life. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I think most Christians have an understanding that we're to seek the will of God. The mistake we often make, though, is once we know the will of God, is we go and try and do it in ourselves. But God's in you both to will, to choose what to do, and then to do it according to His good pleasure. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.24, The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. He will bring it to pass. He will make it happen. So for you and I, we're to trust in Jesus Christ to live the Christian life through us. So Jesus did not live His life for God. He didn't dedicate His life for God. He didn't make God the Lord of His life or do His best and let God do the rest. Instead, and this is the one I want you to write down, instead, He lived as a man was designed to live in total dependence upon God living in Him. That's how Jesus lived. As you and I, as Adam, back in the garden, was intended to live. In complete and total dependence upon God. To be God in man. So the question then is, how do we tap into that? Or put another way, how are we to live and do the works of God? What's our part in all this? I mean, this is the question that they asked Jesus. The followers of Jesus in John 6, 28, they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What's our part in all this? And the answer is true just as it was then as it is today. And his answer was, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To put your faith and your trust in me. And that's not just for salvation. That's just the beginning of it. But now after salvation, to continue to live in that trust, moment by moment in Him. So it's not about me trying to do what Jesus did, but rather live in intimate, uh, rather to imitate His dependence. So in Colossians 2.6, it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in Him or walk in Him. Now, how many people have heard of the, the Amplified Bible? Is it just a loud Bible for deaf people? 
No. It takes a passage and it amplifies it. It adds some words. It adds some meaning, or not adds meaning, but he they expand on the meaning in a verse. So I'm going to give you my amplified version of this verse. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, how did you and I get saved? By faith. And so, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord by faith, continue to live in Him by faith or by grace through faith. Meaning that God did everything in terms of our salvation. Now we're to trust in Him to walk that out. That Jesus would now live His life through us. So faith at salvation is just the beginning but now continue that faith, continue that dependence as He lives in you. Does that make sense? So all these things is wonderful, it looks good, but producing this right behavior does not necessarily glorify God. There's something far more that glorifies God. So I think God's answer is this. He gets His highest glory in His Son, and we glorify God not by what, by what we do, but what Christ does through us. That's what gives God His highest glory. Look at a verse in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Paul writes about a mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. They haven't seen it. It's been hidden from them. But it has now been manifested to us, His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? What is this this thing that's been hidden from them? Well, it's this. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or maybe we could read it this way. It's Christ in you, the only hope of glory. The only hope you and I have of bringing glory to God is not by what you do, but what Christ can do through you. Because He now lives where? In us. So that's what's going to glorify God. Christ living in us. I think God's purpose to having kids is similar to why we have kids. It's to have an extension of ourselves. So that our we can see our life in another person. It's to have someone to, to someone we can love and someone whom we can express that love to. It's not someone we're we're not having a kid just so they love us. Many people have tried that only to be quickly, you know, dis- disappointed because that child is more interested in loving themselves than it lo- is in loving mom and dad. But that's not the point. We don't have kids to love us. We have kids to love them. It's to have someone we can lavish ourselves on to teach, to train, to mold. And that's what God's wanting to do with you and I. He's not looking for someone to use. He's not looking for a servant, per se. In fact, that's what Jesus says. I no longer call you servants because... The servants don't know the mind of the master. Now I call you friends. In other parts of Scripture, we've been called brothers. In other parts, we've been called children of God. In other parts, we're called His lover. We're married to Him and the bride of Christ. That's who we are now. That speaks of something far more intimate, far more close. And that's what He's after. So is Jesus expressing His life in and through us that gives God His greatest glory? Amen? So how's that sound? Sound good? All right, now it's time for the depressing news then. So it's all downhill after this. That's as high as we get. 
So the question is, what hinders God's purpose? If Christ lives in us as believers, as Christians, and Christ living in us, what hinders that? Why doesn't He live through us all the time? I mean, if that's the case, if Jesus came to live through us, then why don't we always see Him? Well, there's something that gets in the way. And a way to think of it is really that there's two systems of living. There's two ways of living. One is living after the flesh. Another is living in or after the Spirit. And a a simple way to illustrate these two contrasting systems is understanding the flesh maybe as someone who is paddling a canoe. How many people here have paddled a canoe? I imagine that people have had varying degrees of experience and varying degrees of, of abilities when it comes to paddling a canoe. I mean, there might be some of you that are like an Olympian. They can just paddle in straight lines regardless of the weather for hours on end. And then there are others that are more creative in their paddling technique and directions. They follow more of a, not even a zigzag, more of just a free-natured sort of approach where they just go where they want to go. And after about 20 minutes, they're done. The reality is the paddlers share something in common. You see, what drives the canoe? The paddler. So for some paddlers, they can go for hours. For some paddlers, they only can go for minutes. But eventually, what's going to happen to every paddler? They're going to get exhausted. They're going to tire themselves out, and they're going to need a break. They're going to reach a point somewhere in their paddling where they've got nothing left in the tank. And so they'll take a break, and then they'll say, well, i got to get going, and they'll try again. But as long as they're working, then the boat's moving. But if they ever stop paddling, then they're standstill or they're going backwards. And that's basically what it means to live after the flesh. Just as this paddler is dependent upon himself to move the boat, when you're living after the flesh, you are dependent upon you and your own strength and own abilities to get through life. So for some people, they are very talented and they can work really, really hard and they seemingly get far in life. And then there's others that don't seem to have much talent and much ability and they don't seem to get very far. But again, they share something in common. Eventually, they will burn themselves out. Eventually, they'll run out of gas and they'll have to take a break. But the spirit life is really more of a sailboat. You see, what drives the sailboat here? The wind, which is interesting because in Hebrew, the word wind is the same as spirit. And so this this wind comes and it fills the sail. And that sail now harnesses the power of the wind to propel the boat through the water. And so how long can this sailboat go for? As long as wind blows. They're not dependent upon themselves. They're not dependent upon their own ability. There is another source, another power that can be limitless to provide the strength and the power. And that's what it's like to live after the Spirit. We're not dependent upon the boat itself, but someone else to propel us. So the flesh is based on my own strength, where living after the Spirit is based on God's strength. Whereas living after the flesh is based on what I do, living after the Spirit is based on what God has done. And in the flesh, it's an achieving system. Where my work, my effort, what I do, somehow initiates God rewarding me. It's a performance-based reward system. But 
under grace in the Spirit, it's a receiving system where God is giving to us life, breath, and all things. So on page 6 of your notes there, it says that the flesh hinders the expression of Christ's life through us. We'll uh, take a look at this diagram more tomorrow night, but man is essentially comprised of three different parts. He's made up of a spirit, a soul, and a body. And in the case of an unbeliever, is God in this person? No. God is outside of this person, separated from God from, as a result of his sins and transgressions. So there's a disconnect. And so the result of that is man's spirit is dead to God. It's without the life of God. It has what is called an old, old man's spirit. If we were to use our sailboat as an analogy, that sail has essentially been shredded. So the wind is blowing, but that sailboat can't harness the power of the wind anymore. And so what does man have left now to get by in life? If the spirit isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is to harness the power of God, what's man got left? His body and soul. And that's really what the flesh is. It's the combination of body and soul doing the best that I can, independent of God, to meet my needs or protect myself. It's my own natural abilities to get my needs met. My need for love, my need for worth, for significance, for belonging, for, for uh, competence, or to protect myself from being hurt in any way, through rejection, through abuse, through insecurity, but I'm doing it all independent and apart from God. That's what the flesh is. Now, in the New American Standard, in the King James Bible, they take the word flesh, and what shows up in the Bible, literally the word is sarx in the Greek, and they translate it as flesh, which makes sense, because that's literally what sarx is. It's just you know flesh, like your body flesh. And I think God chose this word flesh to describe this system of living because it is a life that is on the opposite end of God. God is spirit. Flesh is on that opposite end. Flesh is the one thing that, you know, God doesn't have. And so it's, it's life independent of God, apart from God. That's what this flesh is about. And so your New American Standard and the King James Bible, they just translated it as flesh. Now, in the NIV Bible, they've unfortunately translated this word flesh to be sinful nature. And that really, I think, is a, a very poor translation. Uh, the NIV Bible, for the most part, is good. But in a few parts, and namely when they come to translate this word sarx, they've really dropped the ball. And the reason I say that is because if God wanted to call it a sinful nature, He would have called it a sinful nature. The words were available to Him. Instead, God chose to call it sarks. He chose to call it flesh. And I think he did that for a reason. The problem with sinful nature is now, is I think of flesh as being only immoral. Only getting drunk and, you know, dating girls they shouldn't date and smoking and, you know, doing all those things. And if you're a Baptist, dancing. You know, those are the things that's the flesh. That's the sinful nature. But the sinful nature is much more than that. It's doing anything independent of God. And that may include some things that look good. That's also included in the flesh. Now, in the Old Testament, this idea of flesh or living independent of God can be translated sometimes as my own way or the heart of man. 
So reading in the Old Testament, if you come across these phrases, this is the same idea of living apart from God. But what might man himself call it? He might just call it his life. It's who I am. And so he gets saved one day, and then he dedicates what? He dedicates his life to God. In essence, what is he dedicated? He's dedicating the best that he can, independent of God, to live for God. And that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for your flesh. He's looking for your heart. He's looking to live through you. But he's not looking for what you could do for him, independent of him. In Romans 8, 5 to 8, it says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. See, the flesh is against God. It's, as I said, it's the opposite of God. It's, it does not subject itself to the law of God. See, the law of God, in essence, says to love. That's how Jesus summed it up, right? Love God with all you got. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's, in essence, what the law of God's asking for. The flesh, it can't do that. Nor is it able to do so. Because the flesh is interested in who? Me. Protecting me, getting my needs met at your expense, if necessary. I mean, it's great if you're taken care of, but I'm really only interested in me. And so the result is the flesh cannot please God. Now in Galatians 5, verses 17 to 21, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. What he has done is he's giving to us some of the symptoms of the flesh. This is sort of like, you know, if you go into the doctor's office and say, Doc, I've got a sore throat, I'm, I'm feeling a little, uh, you know, i got a fever, I've got chills, and, and I'm just feeling kind of gross. You're giving to him some symptoms and you'd say, well, it's because you got the flu or some other disease, right? And so what you're doing is you're giving him the symptoms and then he tells you what the disease is. In the same way, that's what Paul's done here. He says, here are the symptoms, immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so forth. Those are all the symptoms of what? The flesh. But you see, I've left some things out in the middle here. Because for the most part, I think as Christians, we don't, you know, for the most part, struggle with this stuff. You guys don't have any golden calves sitting on your mantelpieces, right? You guys aren't struggling with idolatry. No golden calves? There's some things in between here, though. Like enmities. You know what enmities are? Fights. Strife. All kinds of angers. This jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes. Dissensions, factions, envy. I mean, for some, I've just described the last church board meeting. Right? I mean, this stuff happens in our churches today. I mean, think about it. It starts with some disagreements and then some strife and some arguing. And then we get jealous over one another. And so we have that outburst of anger over the disputes. And then we have dissensions and factions. We call those denominations or birthing a new church, because then it sounds better. But, you know, we're just church splits, and then there's envy. My church is better than your church. My pastor is better than your pastor. And this is going on in the church today. There is idolatry, but of a different form. One that we don't typically recognize. And it's happening in our churches today. But the reality is, this stuff here, this isn't the problem. Christians don't have anger problems. 
Christians don't have sensuality and impurity and immorality problems. Those are the symptoms of the problem. The problem is the flesh. Could you imagine you go and see a doctor because you have blurry vision, you're dizzy, and um, uh, what's another one? You, you're having headaches. And the reason is because you got a tumor in your head. And you go to the doctor and he says, you know what? No problem. I've got some Tylenol here to take care of your headache. Here's a cane to help with the dizziness and new set of glasses to take care of the blurry vision. How good of a doctor would you have in that case? A lousy doctor because all he's doing is treating the symptoms. In fact, he's not even treating the symptoms. He's masking the symptoms so that you would never recognize and realize the problem, which is a tumor. But if the doctor went in and he dealt with the tumor, what might happen to all the symptoms? They might go away. And what Christians are doing today is they are treating all these symptoms, not realizing that they're masking the real problem, which is the flesh. Because if you can deal with the flesh, then you deal with the symptoms and the deeds of it. But as Christians, you and I are not immune to this stuff. See, in Barna Research, they did a research in 2008, and it reported that 32% of Christians are or have been divorced compared to 33% of non-Christians. Now, in no way am I picking, up, picking on those who've been through a divorce. Because those who've been through a divorce have been through hell and back, and that's not my point. But... Those that have been through a divorce would t- say that the divorce was a result of too much of this. And since the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate out of the church, then Christians are equally struggling with the flesh. So just because you're a Christian doesn't make you immune to the flesh. The reality is just because you're a Christian, it might make it worse. So the traditional religious view is that you know flesh is evil behavior, the spirit is good behavior. Maybe you've heard people preach uh, uh, sermons on the fact that there's a, there's a good dog and a bad dog within you. And whoever you feed, that's going to win the battle. There's a good you and a bad you. Interesting illustration, lousy theology though. It's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Jesus Himself says, a house divided cannot stand. So if Jesus is going to set you up with a split personality... He's setting you up to fail, never mind making a schizophrenic. That's not what he's done. But the flesh is much more than that. Um, Some people think of it as the good me versus bad me. How many people have heard of Charles Templeton? Charles Templeton is, is, uh, you have to go back many years now, he was an evangelist in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. In fact, he was one of the top two evangelists of his day. There's another guy, you might have heard of him, Billy Graham. Anyone heard of Billy Graham? Yeah. Charles Templeton was the guy that gave Billy Graham his start. He says, you know, this Billy kid, he could preach. We should, we should let him preach more. And so he and Billy Graham were the two top evangelists of their day. In fact, if you wanted Charles Templeton to come to your town, you had to wait two years for him to come. But being a Canadian, he always made sure to come to Canada. In fact, one time he went out to the Maritimes, and out of a city of 120,000 people, 90,000 people came to hear him speak. That's, that's remarkable. That's three quarters. Could you imagine three quarters of Kitchener-Waterloo coming to hear Billy Graham speak? That's what 
Charles Templeton was doing. Countless people were saved as a result of this guy's ministry. Well, in the 60s, he left that, went on to do many things, journalism, authoring books, and so forth. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called Farewell to God. And in that book, he said, I never believed in the resurrection. I never believed in the creation account. I never believed in the stories the Bible said. So you might ask, why did I do the things I did? It just made sense to do it. It was just a good way to make a living at the time. But I never believed them. By his own words, was Charles Templeton ever saved? No. So evangelizing, ministering to all those people, a wonderful thing. I don't know if I can name a better thing out of what resources, what strength did he do that out of? Was it flesh or spirit? It was all flesh. It was completely flesh. His own strength. Good looking, but flesh nonetheless. So the flesh is much more than just evil behavior. The biblical view of the flesh then. Let's take a look at some verses that talk about the flesh. You see, the the NIV people, they have, uh, I can't remember if it's 40 or 60 different translations for this word sarks. They couldn't, I mean, sinful nature just didn't work. So they had to keep putting in different terms for it. So here in Galatians uh, 4, 22 to 24, we read the story about Abraham having two sons. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But by the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through the promise. For these are allegorically speaking. See, it tells the story of how Abraham heard from God that he was going to have a son. Abraham, after you know many years of waiting for an heir, God says, you're going to have an heir born of your own loins. He now knew the will of God for his life. And then he set out with the help of Sarah and Hagar to go and fulfill the will of God, but do it in his own strength. And he produced Ishmael. And what Paul is writing to us is that Ishmael was one born according to the flesh. Now, I want you to see, Abraham wasn't out just to go and sleep with Hagar for kicks. He wasn't out to go and commit adultery for fun. He was trying to do God's will. He was trying to do what God had promised. But he was trying to do it in his own strength, and his own power. And Paul gives us the commentary on that, saying that was according to his own flesh. The NIV people, they translated it as doing it his own way. Which is, which is good because that's closer to what it's talking about, but I think you'd be better off just calling it flesh and, you know, letting the reader interpret, interpret it that way. In Galatians 3, earlier on in that book, Paul writing to the church of Galatia, a very proper church. I mean, the church of Galatia was one that was trying to do everything right, trying to do everything by the book. That means, you know, if they were by today's standards, they would be doing service at the right time, on the right day. Everyone wears the right clothes. They have the right kind of pastor who speaks for the right amount of time. After they sing the right number of songs from the right songbook or hymn book, um, they, you know, take the right offering the right way. They just, they were doing everything by the book as, as best they can. And so Paul writes to these people and he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh? Now the NIV people realize sinful nature didn't make sense here, so they translate it as human effort. Because there is nothing overtly sinful with what they were doing. In fact, the church of Galatia was just trying to live by rules and principles and morality. 
They were trying to do everything right. And Paul says, all you're doing is trying to be perfected by the flesh. That's it. And then finally, in Philippians 3, Paul gives us a description of his own flesh. The NIV people just gave up here, and they translated it as flesh as well. But here we can see what Paul's flesh looked like. He says this, in beginning in verse 3, "...put no confidence in the flesh." Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he gives to us a detailed description of what his flesh looks like. And you'll see there's nothing sinful about it. There's nothing immoral about it. All it is is his own natural abilities and and heritage. He begins with, I was circumcised the eighth day. That means he was eight days old and he was already following the law. That he was of the nation of Israel. He was actually born a Jew. He didn't you know, convert to Judaism at later on in life. He started off there. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So other Hebrews looked up to him. He was, uh, as to the law, oh, sorry, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Benjamites, they saw themselves as better Hebrews than everyone else. Because of the 12 tribes, Benjamin was the only one who was actually born in Israel. The other 11 were a bunch of foreigners because they were born outside of Israel. So the Benjamites had this idea that they were they were real Israelites compared to the other eleven tribe, other twelve tribes. In fact, when you consider that you know when God got to choose a king, He chose Saul. Guess which tribe Saul was from? Benjamin. So they were really God's first choice. So this is the idea. He's saying, "I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the best tribe." As to the law, I was a Pharisee. That means when they were four years old, they were memorizing the Torah. <laughs> They were memorizing the law. When I was four, I was just trying to learn to read, you know, Mickey Mouse or something. He was serious. He was serious about stuff. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I love God so much, I was willing to kill for it. That's what he's talking about. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. You couldn't pin anything on me. This is his flesh. Nothing overtly immoral, nothing overtly sinful, except it's all Him trying to do it in His own strength. It's all Him trying to do it in His own power and His own ability. And He says, don't trust in it. If anyone would, it's me. But don't you. Don't, because it doesn't work. It profits nothing. In the Old Testament, we have verses like Isaiah 53 and verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Because we were disconnected from God, we had no choice. We had to rely upon our flesh. Each of us has had that. And then in Proverbs 14, 12, and then again in 16, 25, identical verses, the writer writes, There is a way which seems right unto man, but its end is the way of death, the way of destruction, the way of ruin. And our flesh seems right. Our flesh seems natural. But the end product of that flesh is it simply doesn't work. It's empty. It will end in ruin. So where did this all begin? Well, it goes all the way back to those two trees in the garden. What were the two trees? Anyone remember? The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I I used to think it was the tree of good and the tree of evil. And that, you know from many ways, thought it made more sense to me. And God didn't want them to eat a tree of evil. But the reality was, it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God didn't want them to eat of. In fact, He said, the day you eat of it, what would happen? You would surely die. Instead, He wanted them to eat of the tree of life. 
But along comes uh, the serpent. And the serpent says in Genesis 3, he says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that really the case? Really? And she says, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she was instructed to stay away from it. She understood what was going on. And the serpent just kind of laughs. Oh, don't be silly. That's just one of the most ridiculous things I've heard. I mean, you won't surely die. In fact, the opposite's true. For God knows the day you eat of it, you'll become like Him. Your eyes will be open. You'll know good and evil. And you'll be like God. In fact, you'll really live. And you see, what, what these two trees were doing is they were a choice for man. You see, love demands a choice. If I put a gun to your head and say, love somebody or I'm going to kill, kill you, then is it really love? It's just self-preservation. Love needs the option to say, no, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to do it. I don't have to do it, but I'm going to do it. And you see, God didn't have to make us. He really didn't. He didn't owe us anything, but He chose to. He chose to make you and I. That was His act of love. Because He wanted you. He chose you. But now man needs to choose God. And for Adam and Eve, it was these two trees. You see, it could have been two of anything. It could have been two cars, two mountains, two rivers, two chairs, two cakes, two cups. It could have been two of anything where he says, are you going to make a choice between me or something else? Are you going to choose life and to be dependent upon me? Or are you going to choose to be independent of me and choose death? That was the choice before man. And we know what happened. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You see, did Eve set out to do something sinful? No. Who did she set out to be like? She wanted to be like God. And she saw this as a great way to be like God. She had great desires in all this. If I know good and I know it's evil, I can do the good and avoid the evil. And I too could be like God. I can have life in myself. I don't need to be dependent upon Him. And so Adam and Eve chose to be independent. They chose a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to live life apart from God. And so what we see here, the two trees become a picture. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is really a picture of independence. Life apart from God. Whereas the tree of life is dependence. Where our life is dependent upon, upon Father. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is a picture of self-sufficiency. Where the picture in the tree of life is Christ-sufficiency. In the tree of knowledge, good and evil, we see the flesh. And you see, the flesh sometimes looks good, sometimes it looks evil. There's good-looking flesh and there's not-so-good-looking flesh, but it's still flesh. And that's what we have here. And God's not interested in you cleaning up your flesh and having more good and less evil. He's more interested in you living out of the tree of life, which is a picture of the Spirit, 
In the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we see law, which always leads to bondage. Whereas in the tree of life, we see grace, which leads to freedom. Now let me do a quick test on you guys. Apple trees produce what? Orange trees produce what? Okay, so far so good. Will I ever find an apple on an orange tree? Will I find an orange on an apple tree? No, you won't. It won't work. Right? Because like produces like. Well, this is the tree of life. What will it produce? This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What did God promise it would produce? Death. So you will find death on this tree, life on this tree. But conversely, you will not find any death in this tree, nor will you find any life in this tree. All you will ever find is death. That's all the flesh will ever give you. It may look like life for a time, but it's empty. It's sort of like McDonald's food. It looks like food, but it's not. That's the flesh. Okay, let's on page 8A then, let's summarize this with a long-winded definition of the flesh. So the flesh is, or the, is, or the self-life sometimes we refer to, is the condition, or the mindset, or the attitude, or the strategy of living, where my focus is primarily on myself, on me. It may be good-looking self, it may be well-adjusted self, or socially acceptable self, it may be un-socially uh, un acceptable, it may be ugly self, but it's still on me. Where I'm living under my own resources, could be my heritage, my education, my IQ, my personality, my sense of humor or lack thereof, my looks, my talents, my abilities, and so forth. Where I'm trying to either cope slash deal with life, maybe trying to solve my problems, maybe meet my needs, become a success, or maybe even trying to please God with my performance. All that is flesh. And it doesn't please God one bit. So in other words, it's me trying to live life independent of Christ. That's what the flesh is. And that's what hinders Jesus from living through us. That's what hinders us from experiencing the real thing. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.